Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah. Hope everybody's paying attention today. We have a guy on the show, and he's going to talk about his book, Guns, Girls, and Greed, and his experience in the military. I want to welcome Morgan Lorette to the show. How you doing, Morgan? Great. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. So diving into Guns, Girls, and Greed, I mean, I th- you know, it's a very interesting title. What are we talking about? So when I got out of the military uh, and I went to go work for Blackwater, I could have definitely stayed in the military and gone back overseas, but Blackwater paid a heck of a lot more. So this was really kind of the topic of all conversations, Blackwater, even in the military. They always talk about guns, girls, and how much money you were making. So you can't you can't put how much money you're making at the end of the title or else it wouldn't sound as cool. How does that break down for you? You said you started out in the Air Force. And then you went to Blackwater. Was that what it was billed to be? And is that what you expected it to be? So when I got out of the military, I was trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do, taking some college classes. And my buddy got on with Blackwater and he's like, you should come and do this. And I thought, well, I got nothing else going on. Literally, the recruiter called me the day after I he got my information was like, we can get you on a plane, let's get you trained, let's get you over to Iraq. So part of it was the money, right? You're making $550 a day. I was 23 years old. That was really great money. And then the other part was the adventure. Like, what was Blackwater? I didn't even know, hardly know anything about it. And they were expanding exponentially, uh, protecting diplomats over in Iraq. So it was a very gray area of what contractors could and couldn't do because we hadn't really injected you know, private protection into a war zone combat environment before. So we just kind of learned as we went. It was definitely everything I expected and everything I didn't expect all just mushed into one. Now, now Blackwater, was that Cheney's deal? No, Blackwater was Eric Prince's deal. So okay. when we went into Iraq, we gave the government over to Iraq in 2004, and then it became a diplomatic mission, right? It was no longer a combat mission. So when you get all these diplomats over there, you know, the the um, the head diplomat for Iraq, you have all these junior diplomats, and they're going through Baghdad to try to help the new government run it. So air traffic controllers, Ministry of Mir- Minerals would be like your oil guys. They all needed to be protected, and there was nobody to protect them. Those government agencies don't have protection protective units. So it just kind of became a vacuum of how can you get people over to this combat zone to protect these individuals to get them from point A to point B, and then hire in as many people as you can and, and get them on the ground. So you needed security within a combat zone. I mean, don't that seem a little, I don't know, it just seems odd to me. It doesn't seem like it jails well. It definitely doesn't. Um, The problem is we didn't want to be seen as occupiers. So when it became a diplomatic mission, then you needed protection that couldn't be from the military. You couldn't just grab a bunch of MPs and drive them down in Humvees. You had to kind of look the part of having diplomats move across the country, you know, wearing your polo shirts, going out there, standing with all your body armor on and, and your guns and just getting them, getting them to where they needed to be. What's a micro story within that makeup? I mean, it, 
makes you think about girls and guns and, and greed. So we would drive a diplomat from the green zone primarily out to a ministry. So the Ministry of Interior for them would be our in interior department. So you drive in, you can't figure out who's the enemy, who's not. Every Everywhere you go, there was IEDs. And we would get to the point that we would just drive as fast and as violently as we could to get them there. And then once you get there, they're up there talking to, to the high up mucky mucks over in the Iraqi government. And what do you do when they're doing that? Well, you sit around and you just start talking. So, of mm -hmm. course, it's always going to be, hey, you know, what are you using? What kind of sites are you using on your M4? What do you have with your Glock? All that other stuff. And then girls. It's always girls. You're in a combat zone. Your testosterone is through the roof. So, of course, you're going to say, oh, I got, you know, this girl that's waiting for me. Or I, you know, some people go to Amsterdam on their leave and go to the red light district. And it was just the stories that you would tell each other out of just sheer boredom were probably the funniest things I've ever heard in my entire life. And that's kind of what the book is, is... It's going through that opportunity, like Eric Prince saw, to create this private military. I took advantage of that opportunity. And then what what actually came from that? What's the good of it? What's the bad of it? And, and what did you see on the ground through my lens that shows what private military contractors were doing before anybody knew what the heck they were supposed to be doing? If you were going to meet a girl over there, I mean, were these Iraqi females? I mean, who were who are these females? Are people in the military? What was up with that? Yeah, no, military girls. Uh, so as contractors, we could drink. So we would go out to Saddam's old pool. We'd crack open a bunch of booze. And then you had a bunch of other contractors there too. KBR, that was um, Dick Cheney's gig. So you had them, you had military girls, you had all the, the different agencies had females over there. And there was actually a, a club in the green zone that you could go down to in a hotel and go down there. And it was just like, going to a, a bar in the US, like drinking and dancing and talking to, to girls. But I mean, the ratio of girls was definitely like one to 20. So it was like watching a basketball game, you know, 10 people fighting over over one ball. <laughs> and how, how would the girls respond to that? Um, you know, when you go overseas as a girl, they call it Baghdad beauties or overseas beauty queens. You didn't have to be an eight or a nine or a 10 on the female side to bag, you know, a 10 on the male side all day long. So I'm sure some of them weren't interested in it, but there was a number of them that, that wanted to partake. So what was it like and what did it look like sitting around Saddam's pool? This is the most opulent thing you have ever seen in your life. You could go to a five-star resort and it would not be this nice. So Saddam had his palace. There's probably 8,000 bedrooms in it. Every agency from the military to the government agencies had a little part of this palace. And then behind it was just an immaculate pool. Just absolutely amazing. And probably like the nicest stuff surrounding that you've ever seen. So if you've ever been to like Newport, Rhode Island, and you see those mansions out there that you can tour, every building that Saddam had was like that. It was just absolutely decked out. The walls had wooden, you know, carved wooden um, decorative pieces on it that you know somebody spent hours and hours and hours of doing and no no expense was spared when Saddam uh, wanted his palaces to be uh to his to his uh, desire now, now, was the pool functional? I mean, was it running? Could you, oh, did y'all yeah. go jump in the pool? Oh, yeah. No, they, there was contractors out there that were keeping the pool going, those KBR guys. So, you know, you had your pool pumps and the water was just absolutely crystal blue. Uh, there was another pool in the green zone, very similar, much larger. They had a Olympic-sized swimming pool. I mean, I don't think Saddam worked out that much, but if he wanted to, he could definitely go for a swim right in his backyard, wherever he was. Now, Blackwater, is that... 
you know, would you consider that the industrial military? No, Blackwater is um, like a, a supplement to military. So in, in Blackwater, it doesn't exist anymore. It got bought by Triple Canopy that got bought by a company called Constellus. What they do is they supplement the local military. So a lot of the stuff they do right now in Syria, uh, Ukraine, you name it, anywhere where there's a combat zone, they are sending contracts over, contractors over there to train local forces on how to perform combat operations. Now, the purpose of the book, I mean, what's your goal uh, that you wanted to achieve when you first approached writing this book? When I first started writing it, it was because I would tell these outlandish stories that people didn't believe. And I would say, no, it happened. And I'd show them pictures. I'd say, God, you got to write a book. So I started kind of in the vein of Tucker Max, where I was just writing, you know, funny stories. And then it just kind of turned itself into a book um, where it really is a growing up story. 23 years old, making too much money, going overseas. Even as a contractor, you still have the same problems that soldiers have, right? Like you have PTSD, you have uh, being away from your family, you have literally the close-up view of combat, right? Like, like some of my friends died. Uh, we had a car accident where a couple of small Iraqi children died in it. And it, it just gets really real. And that's the book. Is it's a progression of me going over there thinking, this is going to be a great adventure, uh, to going, holy crap, what did I get myself into? And then slowly it just became like a normal life. As, as odd as that sounds, like I felt more... Like I was home when I was in Baghdad than I did when I was sitting at home, you know, watching, watching football. Really? Why, why do you think that is? I think you just get used to it. it. And it's probably every career. If you're in sales and you're always traveling, you probably feel really comfortable when you get to your hotels. Literally people that you're with, this brotherhood that you hear about in the military, same with contractors, where you feel safe, you feel secure, and you feel like no matter what happens, you know, these guys have my back and I have their back. I, repetition, right? Rote repetition turns into just comfort. The Saddam thing, I mean, what was that all about? I mean, you know, I saw something in there. You were collecting information uh, for the situation he was going through. What was that approach and, and thought process? Because there's a lot of misleading stories, you know, that have been out there over time and so forth. Uh, the first team I was on, we were attached to something called the Regime Crimes Liaison Office. And those were the individuals that were collecting evidence for the trials of Saddam Hussein, Chemical Ali, all of his high-level people. The problem was is that we couldn't collect the evidence because it had to go through the Iraqi government so that it wouldn't look like a kangaroo court. So we would take these people out from all these different agencies. Uh, we would collect evidence. So we went up to Halabja, where he gassed the Kurds in 1988, uh, all over Sulaymaniyah, northern Iraq, where he did uh, the debathification up in Kirkuk or Beal, you name it. And we would work with the, our, their Iraqi counterparts to do a chain of custody, right? So just like in, in the U.S., you have to make sure that when the evidence starts here and it gets all the way down here, that there is somebody that's signing for each one of those pieces and identifying it and being able to say, I can now use this in court because I can show you that chain of custody. So that's, that's what I did for approximately three months while we were over there. And then we'd take all that documentation and drive it up to JSS Justice. JSS Justice is where all the high-value targets were, and ultimately where Saddam Hussein was hanged. So was Saddam really as bad as they made him out to be? 
Oh my God, he was he he was probably worse. Just to be like completely honest with you, so all the oil for food money you could see it in every palace that he built. His the city streets, um, and granted we'd already been there for a year, so we probably ruined some of that stuff. But the city streets are just absolute chaos. Anybody that was in the government prior got kicked out because he was part of the bath party, and we did the debathification of the government. So nobody knew how to run the government. Um, he really kept everybody very close around him and those that were just normal citizens it was just him and his family and his, his close group of friends and he he was ruthless absolutely ruthless and what what were some of the things that he did that maybe some evidence you collected you saw that was kind of shocking yeah so after the Ground invasion in 1993, Operation Desert Storm, uh, we set up the no-fly zone. The no-fly zone essentially said that he couldn't fly jets in the northern part of Iraq and the southern part of Iraq. So if my face is Iraq, then he couldn't fly here, you know, from my chin down to my um, forehead up, as big as that is. Uh, so what he did is he would send his military up north and down south. He would go to the local compounds, like the police stations for the Kurds, and he would pull all the Kurds out, line them up against the wall, and he would just shoot them. And there's these walls where you could see it was just a firing squad where people would stand, and there was bullets pretty much from head level down to torso level, and he would just absolutely slaughter every military-aged male that he could. So we would go out to these little villages, mud huts. I mean, these are places that history has forgotten but somehow mm -hmm. they had like one light bulb and the same story everywhere we went like every military age male after 1993 was rounded up and they were shot and they were buried in in a grave so we did a bunch of um we went out to a bunch of mass grave sites and you could see it in the population of those small little areas like you didn't have any males that were my age or older you had old men and you had relatively young men and that was it everybody else just got slaughtered by that guy and is, is this something he did himself or just something he carried out or yeah it's something he he directed so chemical ali uh was the guy that was kind of doing all of his dirty work for him uh, especially in northern iraq against the kurds and, and what was the purpose of him taking out the kurds he thought those are the people who were up against him yeah so the kurds aligned with iran so you got to go back to like 1980. 1980 to 1988 was the Iran-Iraq border conflict. The Kurds sided with Iran, so he, ar he already hated them, and he decided that he didn't want them to be any part of his Iraq. So that's when he gassed the Kurds in 1988 up at Halabja. And then after the ground offensive, uh, the Kurds were the ones, you know, kind of rooting the U.S. on in 1993. And he thought, well... If you're not with me, you're against me. And he just went up there and started slaughtering. Interesting. And the Kurds, I mean, wasn't most of the Kurds from like Turkish, you know, from Turkey in that area? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's another interesting border conflict. But it does um, it does butt up to Turkey, and the Kurds are the largest displaced um, ethnicity in the world. So the Turkish have a lot of Kurds, but now the Turks are fighting the Kurds because they want their own autonomous state too. So the Kurds don't have a whole lot uh, protecting them, except for their own little provincial governments that are based up in Erbil and Sulaymaniyah. And I don't know, I wanted to ask about spirituality. Did you ever feel like, I mean, that part of the world has got some very interesting places, you know, wonders of the world and so forth. Did How did that ever feel? Did it ever feel like a spiritual area or what did that feel like just in general? I talk about it in the book. So I grew up, you know, going to church. And you read about Babylon and the gates of Babylon and the hanging gardens of Babylon. And I was able to go see those. And it just, it didn't feel like 
spiritual in any way because it was decrepit. It was just like, just let go. Nobody cared. There's no like sites. There's no Grand Canyon where they said, hey, you know, we want to keep Babylon and we want to make it pristine so people can walk around. So um, in northern Iraq is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tossed into the furnace. And the furnace is actually... Um, these little, there's so much oil that the natural gas seeps out of the ground and you can light it on fire. And that's where you can like, people would um, dry their clothes and they would cook off of it. And even going there and understanding what that was like from a biblical standpoint, it still just felt industrialized, right? They're just pumping oil out of the ground and the oil so close to the ground, you could step on it and have black on your shoes. Mm. Hmm. And is that... I mean, well, you think about that part of the world. I mean, is that just from they had, you know, plenty of dinosaurs out there? Where does all the oil come from? Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. I have no idea. I don't know if it's more about the oil where it came from as much as about the accessibility of it. Yeah. I'm sure if you dug in Oklahoma. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We keep a lot of emotions bundled up inside in life, and sometimes we got to talk to people. I witnessed the benefits with my own two eyes. I have a close friend that was struggling with depression and felt like she had no one she could consistently talk to because of her busy schedule. She was matched with a therapist through BetterHelp. After several months of sessions, I've seen a tremendous change in her personality and in her life. If you're needing therapy and and want to get some of those things off your chest, it's entirely online and designed to conveniently work around your schedule and empower you to be the best version of yourself. Just fill out a questionnaire and they will align you with the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash unimpressed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash unimpressed. In Texas, you could find big plots of oil, but the sands make it to where it's highly accessible and being able to be pumped 
just right out of the ground. And in Kirkuk, they have these these spouts that come up with her stainless steel. And that's all the methane gas that's coming out of them pumping oil. And it, they just set it on fire. So there's all this natural gas that they're just setting on fire to be able to get to the oil and, and send that out. Put your arms around that. If you're walking in the desert, right, and you find oil... And it's kind of up for grabs. You know, you got a border conflict. You got, I mean, that's basically what they're fighting for. They're fighting for the money. It, it was probably a little bit of a chaos to, you know, who was going to claim, you know, the opportunity. Was it not? Or Yeah, so if you break down Iraq into those same little, you know, my face structure again, the middle part doesn't have oil. But mm-hmm. that's where Saddam Hussein had most of his power. Right. So that was that was a, a Sunni region. You hear about the Sunni triangle with Ramadi, Fallujah. That was really um, Saddam Hussein's area. And then north of that is where the oil is and south of that is where the oil is. So it, it was really dependent on Saddam to be able to control those areas or else he would lose all of his ability to financially support, well, building his palaces. But theoretically to support his country because it was just because it was just like uh, is he like a land baron i mean he really wasn't he was they called it a country but is it really just he was trying to make money for himself i mean did he really have a country and did it operate like a country no absolutely not so the northern part was autonomous with the kurds just just north of kirkuk uh and then the southern part was all the shias might be getting my Shia and my Sunnis mixed up, but they were pretty autonomous. But he controlled the parts of those areas to be able to get the oil. And he didn't do anything to help out his his country. I mean, he he was propping up him and his family and his friends and his lifestyle with all that oil for mo- food money. And did they... And- when they found him in that hole, did he really have a bunch of cash with him? Oh, geez. There was cash everywhere. So uh, I wouldn't be shocked if he had cash. We had those um, nickel-plated uh, AK-47s, gold-plated AK-47s that he had. Those were just floating around. Like somebody in the Blackwater tent would have a nickel-plated AK-47 and try to sell it to somebody else because you could never get it home. I'm I'm sure he had plenty of cash on hand, plenty of weapons, uh, but... He he was a coward. He did not want to. Uh, he didn't want to die for his country. So how long were you in the military total? Um, between my active and my reserve time, it was about thirteen years. So how do you feel now? Did you carry any of that home with you? Any anything that it bothers you or that you're dealing with today? Yeah, you always carry that stuff home with you. Um, it doesn't matter if you're there and you know you're staying on the on the big bases or if you're going out every day. Uh, there's just a stress level that you do for over a year working 12, 13, 14 hours a day. You come home and like for me, I can't, I couldn't sit still. I had to go out. I had to go on runs. I had to do something because it felt like it was just too calm. Then you go to the supermarket and you're like, holy cow, they have all this nice laundry detergent and it smells so good. Like it, it's almost coming back. It's almost like going through a wormhole. You start on one side for your year, and then you get to the other side for your year, and everything stopped for me. And at the end of it, I realized nothing stopped stateside, right? People were still buying milk, and my family was still doing their things. And then come home and try to, like, take stuff over, and everybody's like, look, you've been gone. Don't come in here and, like, try to boss us around. So it's yeah. it's it's constant. It gets better over time. I mean, that's the that's the perk. Yeah. Yeah. Now, where's, where's, where are you from? Where's your family from? I grew up in the thriving metropolis of Cottonwood, Arizona, um, small okay. town just south of Sedona. And that's where I went all the way through high school. And then I joined the military. And once I got done with 
my time in the army as an intel officer. I uh, went to graduate school up in Boston. And I was like, holy cow, these people are always in a rush. So uh, made my way back to Arizona and I've been here for about the last 10 years. So, I mean, it's kind of, you know, I talked about the spirituality thing. I, I mean, the reason I asked that is I have Native American on both sides of my family and I'm a I'm a natural healer and a clairsentient. So it's, it's just interesting to me because I think that um, people don't realize, you know, there's one quantum grid, you know, there's one qu quantum field and everybody's connected. I mean, being in Sedona, is that, is your family having spiritual activity or anything like that being in that area? You know, it's funny because Sedona, when I was growing up there was where you went and, you know, you got your crystals and the tourism was less about seeing Sedona and more about going to the vortex. Um, and now it has become so commercialized that everybody just goes through it and doesn't even, you know, pay attention to any of that stuff, which was, you know, part of my childhood. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, we, we grew up in a Christian church. And I mean, I, I think you can find spirituality regardless of, of where you look. Uh, but there, there are things that pull you towards it. I think with Iraq, difficult to try to get into that headspace because mm -hmm. there was so much else that was going on. Right? You can't just sit there and say, oh, man, I can't believe that I'm here at the gates of Babylon. And, you know, Alexander the Great walked through this. You're like, all right, let's go over there and take a picture as quick as we can and then hop back in our trucks where we have all of our armor. What's the plan now? You got the book out and what are you doing today? I mean, yeah, well, I'm just kind of I, I have my my real job that, you know, pays the bills and gets the kids into sports. And then kind of writing on the side, just trying to trying to get the story out there because Blackwater has a lot of bad, I don't know, juju around it. Yeah. You know, um, but that's not really the case. Like it was it was just a difficult time and place to be without knowing what you were going to do or how you were going to accomplish it. You got 2004. We didn't even have GPS. Mm -hmm. you, know? you couldn't just say, hey, Google, send me over to the Ministry of Minerals. It was like, hey, let's look at this map, and then all the roads are closed, and you're you're having to figure out how to how to drive, and you're driving against traffic. You know, you got oncoming traffic, and we're just driving right through it because you got to do your job. And was it a net good or was it a net bad? And that's kind of what the book goes through. Is at the end of it, the reader can choose whether Blackwater or contractors are a net good or a net bad, but they're not going away. It's how we continue to wage war and. Now you see contractors that are moving unaccompanied minors uh, from the U.S.-Mexico border. The contracts are always going to be there. It's a line item for the government now. And what that allows the government agency to do is say, oh, that wasn't us. That was this contracting firm that was doing that. Or is this contracting firm? And it gives them, you know, arm's length to be able to blame somebody else for either their bad planning or their inability to execute. And that's exactly what you're seeing on the border right now. There are so many jobs out there for contractors. So when you said wage war, why do we have to go to war? You know what I'm saying? Like, is it, you know, you know, when you said it's, it gives them an arm length away, I mean, is that is it an excuse so they can go to war if they need to with these contractors? Oh, absolutely. It allows the U.S. government to put essentially military type troops into a combat zone without saying, oh, we have soldiers over there. So it's a cop out. You're, you don't want to send soldiers over to Ukraine, but you're more than happy to send contractors over there. And I think there was a contractor that was killed recently in Syria and everybody just kind of you know shrugged. If that had been a soldier, like what happened in Iraq a few weeks ago, then you have to retaliate. If it's a contractor, it's just a contractor. I mean, it's called the single serve Starbucks coffee cup. They'll mm -hmm. use you 
when they're done using you, they'll throw you away. They got what they wanted out of you. It doesn't matter. And why does the Blackwater, why do you get such a bad rap? I mean, just because of this, because of these types of instances that may happen uh, while you're doing your job? or Yeah, exactly. I mean, do you, the State Department didn't come out and say, oh, Blackwater, they didn't say, oh, that was us. That was, you know, our contract with Blackwater. And it could be any, it could be DynCorp, it could be Triple Canopy, it could be Blackwater was just the one that once the government started focusing on it, that there was no way the Blackwater was going to be able to stay in Iraq and continue to contract. So what they did is those contracts went to a company called Triple Canopy. Triple Canopy walked into the Blackwater compound and said, hey, you guys are all Triple Canopy employees now. Same truck, same people, same everything. Kept doing what they were doing. But it allowed the government to say, oh, Blackwater bad. But don't worry, we have somebody else. Same everything. I mean, do you think we go to war more than we should? I mean... Yes, uh, absolutely. And I, I can't, I can't fathom why we just can't keep our nose out of other people's business. It's, it's, it's crazy to me. Like we're, we're trying to help out the Ukrainians against the Russians. And at the end of the day, we're not going to change anything because we're not putting boots on ground. Yeah. Even when we do put boots on ground all the way back to Vietnam, we don't, we didn't change the outcomes of Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. I, I mean, I, there's definitely a military industrial complex that makes money off of this. And I don't know if that that is always the leading factor. I think the leading factor is two people that disagree. It's like, I've got two kids. My daughter wants to play with Legos. My son doesn't care about Legos until mm -hmm. my daughter plays with the Legos. And then he's got to have those Legos. This is yeah. how wars start. Like it just at, at a much higher level, like two people fighting over some stupid resource. And then at the end of the day, fighting breaks out and the U.S. government doesn't have the balls to go in and say, we have to send our troops in here for this. Then they just start throwing contractors at the problem. I, you know, I, I talked to Lev Parnas and we we're talking about, uh, you know, political sides. So if there's somebody in office over here, they have a lane of contacts. And then if there's somebody else on the other side of the political fence, they have a lane of contacts that are linear to different countries, which... I guess beliefs or policies, whatever you want to call it, depend on where where the elections land and who is linear to that office in another country. Anything could develop. It's not really a uniform process, it seems like to me. Well, and, and politicians have turned into essentially a conveyor belt. They start here and then they get in with one senator or congressman and then they start moving up and then they run for local office and then they run for Congress and they run for Senate. None of the, those guys think differently than any of the other guys. It's just, I want my side to vote for me. Uh, the other side is always going to vote for the other person. And at the end of the day, you're kind of starting to see that shift. So Republicans under George W. Bush, all about war, all about going into Iraq, Afghanistan, you name it. And then once we left those places, now it's the Republican side that is anti-war and the Democrat side that's pushing it, which is very odd, right? Like go back to the 70s. It was always the liberals that said, you know, find love, not war. Um, and now that paradigm is flipped because I think you... You see that everybody that was supporting those wars and sending their kids off to fight them are no longer interested in, in being a part of it. Like I'm not telling my kids to join the military, and uh, I'm a third-generation military individual myself. I had this thought process, you know, if you follow the money, let's just say if you follow the money here, and you look at the NRA, because I can remember when I was a kid, I, I was born in North Carolina, 
in, in the South. And I can remember my grandfather and so forth being a very conservative Democrat, right? And, and in the Northeast was more Republican, you know, and that's just the way it was. So then you think about the NRA, who figures out they can't sell as many guns in the Northeast. So they start pushing their propaganda where the, where the NRA can sell more guns. So they start pushing that propaganda to the South. And now today, that same conservative Democrat is now a Republican. And in the Northeast, they present that as being a liberal section. And I'm sure there's some manipulation there through the media. But um, why don't people realize that kind of stuff? I think people are just so focused on day-to-day, week-to-week, hour-to-hour, paycheck-to-paycheck, that looking at it holistically, like your, your historical context, is not something people go and research. And heck, you're not even allowed to research anything anymore, else you get in trouble. Right? Oh, I was yeah. researching COVID. Oh, yeah, you're anti-vax. It's like, no, I just want to know what the heck's going on. Mm-hmm. So people are just listening and regurgitating what, what their politicians are saying. And then you put yourself into a bubble where all, your, all these people feel the same way as you. And that just allows you to say, well, this is the right thing or the wrong thing. But is it really like there's people are acting like there's no gray area. There is no, um, you know, conservative liberals really anymore. Mm-hmm. You, just, you just don't see it. Well, I, I don't really believe in a two party system. I think, you know, you, when you start defining human beings by their political party, I think that's a little, I don't know, a little ridiculous because, you know, going back to the spirituality thing, there's one, there's one quantum field, there's one God, and there's one answer. And I think I'll roll with God because, if, you know, if you can tell people that, they, there's nowhere to go. You, you know what I mean? Because I, I've gone into this thing about us, us manipulating everything. Even, even, you know, if you understand creation, because I think we have two thought processes, and I talk about this a lot, you have a discovery mindset and you have a creator's mindset. 99% of the society has a discovery mindset. So when you're trying to discover something, it takes you longer to get the answer. And when you do tell yourself that you discover something, whatever you discover could land on the dark side, could land on the light. You don't know. Because, like, when you look at stuff like Oppenheimer, Einstein, those guys, propaganda made them supposedly be the smartest people in the, in the world at the time. But I don't think they were that smart because I don't think God would have created one quantum field, right? And if we understood how that, how that was created and by each step and figured out how to u- utilize that to an advantage instead of trying to manipulate something that doesn't need to be manipulated, I don't know. I can get very deep on that kind of stuff, but you know, trying to split an atom, I don't think God wants us to to split atoms. You know what I mean? I do, and nobody on either side of the war thinks that they're the bad guy. They just never do, right? If somebody came in Arizona and took over Arizona, you can bet your your, your butt that I'm going to be the guy that's going to be the insurgent, right? Nobody wants to try to take the time to look at that other side, the dark or the light. They always just want to say, "Oh, I'm in the light." Even if mm-hmm. even if they're not guns, girls and greed. Where do we where do we find guns, girls and greed? It's out right now on Amazon. So pop over there and and order it up. And it's a it's a heck of a read. I I give it a face punch guarantee. A face if you hate punch. it, you can punch me in the face. I think I think that's about <laughs> as good a guarantee as you can get. I see the swords on there. What was the purpose of the cross swords? What would that symbolize? Oh, so, yeah. So the cross swords was where Saddam Hussein, you, you probably saw him standing up with a shotgun, shooting it in the air. That was his parade field. And these hands were actually 
his hands that they turned into this big brass statue. So anybody that spent some time in Baghdad went to go see the Crosswords Monument, uh, probably drove through it. It's just kind of an homage to those who had spent some time overseas and would, would kind of understand it. Awesome. Well, Morgan, I appreciate you coming on the show. And if you guys want to hear more about Saddam Hussein and, and, and what Blackwater was all about, I think this is the book to read. This has been Morgan Lorette, and I am John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.